0: All right, you may all be seated. I know you're probably worried of how many hours are you going to be here this morning. That was quite a long passage of scripture. Uh, But I don't think it's going to take us too much time to get through. Uh, Some people don't believe me. (laughs) We've laid a lot of groundwork in the last six months, uh, going through the first six chapters now of Genesis. So we're coming to the end of chapter 6, And the flood is about to start. So this morning our sermon is Noah's forewarning. And God gives him extensive instructions on what to do and how to prepare. And Noah is faithful to those instructions. And because of that faithfulness, Noah will be blessed with a covenant that will be made between him and all mankind and all living creatures. And this is a covenant that we still participate in. So for the first time, we are going to see something with direct application on us, but we do have to wait till chapter nine to get that covenant. Our main point, God's got things for us to do and our job isn't to worry about how they are going to be accomplished. Our job is being obedient to him. He gives us what we need to accomplish his will and he blesses obedience. And how are we obedient to him, but to trust and believe in him, and to know for certain that what he says will come to pass. And so we're going to go a little out of order this morning, starting with verse 17, because we want to start with what is God going to do, and why is he going to do it? And he tells Noah his plan. He says, I am bringing a flood of water upon the earth. Now, Noah may have no idea what this means. This word flood, mabul, in the Hebrew, is actually a very unique word. It's one that we have never seen before in Scripture, and it's one that you will never see again except in reference to this specific event. So in order for Noah to understand what mabul is, he has to understand what is about to happen. And God is going to tell him what is about to happen. You see, our translation, the word flood, when we see flood elsewhere in Scripture, it's usually taking advantage of different Hebrew words. This word shetep, which simply means an overwhelming flow, and it can be water or anything else. Daniel 9.26, we see this used. Uh, After the 62 weeks of the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. This is not the same word used for flood. If you want to know more about this verse, you can come to our prayer meeting tonight. This is the verse that we are looking at. But this is an overwhelming force that is going to come on the temple in Jerusalem. This was accomplished in 70 A.D. when they were destroyed completely. This word shibboleth means flowing water. It's used in the Psalms. It says, I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. Notice this is a flood, not the flood. Same in Isaiah 27:12 in the day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates. This is not the flood. This is simply talking about the powerful force of the Euphrates River. We also have these words, ma'im, which is just the plural form of water, which is the form we usually find water in, in Hebrew. And then we have the flood, mabul. And we'll come to find out that mabul simply means a catastrophe. God has to clarify, this is not just a catastrophe, but a catastrophe by water. God is not being repetitive here. Flood means catastrophe. As well, God is using the definite article, which means that this is a specific flood. You can see these little red particles. This means that God is referring to something with uh, something specific. The flood, not a flood, but the flood. And in Genesis 9, 11, after the flood is complete, he establishes his covenant with Noah and says that he will never again cut off by water See, flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. He is never going to send an equivalent catastrophe using water to destroy flesh from all of the earth. This is a specific event, a specific historical event that has never had a parallel since and never will. Now we've heard of plenty of floods around the world, If those floods are equivalent to this flood, then God has not been faithful to his word. But this flood was global. It was not a local flood. It covered all of the peaks of the mountains, probably before the mountains were even the height that they are now, because this convulsion, this catastrophe that struck the earth probably looks a lot like the final days of this earth, when again, earthquakes and catastrophes will destroy this earth. What is God's purpose in sending this immense catastrophe? In 617b, he says his purpose is to destroy all flesh. All flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. And if we haven't been following along with what God has been observing on earth, this might strike us as odd. But he has given us plenty of explanation about why this has become necessary. Earlier on in verse 12, he says, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt Remember, this word corrupt means destroyed. It was already destroyed. The destruction he is bringing in is is cleaning up the mess, not creating the mess. It says, for all flesh had corrupted or destroyed their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. They destroyed themselves, they destroyed the earth. God is not destroying anything here. He is wiping clean the destruction that has been created by sin. And in Genesis 7, 21, in the midst of the flood, we'll see that all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Everything that dwelled on the earth, everything that dwelled on dry land save for what gets in the ark with Noah, will indeed die. And you'll see also that there is a group of animals missing from this, and that is marine creatures. Marine creatures can survive a watery catastrophe, whereas land animals cannot. When we parallel this with the last book of the Bible, we see an increase in intensification it's going to get worse and everything in the sea as well is going to be destroyed in the final judgment. In fact, we see this in two different bowls of the final seven bowls of judgment. Revelation sixteen three through four says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. This does not have its parallel in Genesis. This is increased judgment. This is judgment that will come on every single living thing on earth in the last days. So we see that God is even restraining himself at the flood. It is not the same as the final judgment that is going to finish everything on this earth. But he is, in a sense, starting again. What's interesting about those bold judgments in Revelation is the angels break out from their pattern. You know I like it when patterns break in Scripture because that means we're supposed to pay attention. But they start to declare God's righteousness in bringing these judgments. Why he is correct. Why he is not overdoing it. John writes, I heard the angel of the waters saying... Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So we have God judging. God's judgments are true and perfect, and he judges that the earth deserves this judgment, and so his judgments are Righteous, We can say the same, looking back at Genesis, this concept of lex talionis, the law of retribution that God does not judge uh, with a different measuring rod. God judges perfectly. In Psalm 29.10, the only other time outside of Genesis we ever see that word mabul, God is talking about the flood judgment of Noah. He says the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The same God who rightly judged that the earth requires being wiped clean will again make that judgment in the last days. And he is just to do it the first time and he is just to do it the last time. but he is not going to leave his people without a promise, some uh, hope in the future that they can hold on to. Of course, God has promises that are not yet completed in Noah's day, and God still has to be faithful to those promises to bring about the seed line that will bring about a Savior. And so God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, this is the first time we actually see this word covenant in Scripture. We have talked about it before because we have what are called biblical covenants, or sorry, theological covenants. That means these are covenants that we understand by their structure. We understand by how God promises that these are indeed covenants. They are promises that God will fulfill in the future. The Noahic covenant, Moses actually uses this word covenant. He is going to parallel it with what God is doing in Israel with Israel's covenants. He is going to draw a specific line of contrast. And we'll look at that through the next couple of weeks. But notice that this covenant with Noah is a future promise to Noah. God does not cut his covenant with him right then and there. But since God said that he will do it, it is is absolutely certain. It's as good as if God had already cut the covenant with Noah. But God is going to give Noah an opportunity to show his obedience, to show his faith, to demonstrate to God his faithfulness. God does this with Israel too. And this event in Exodus 19 took place probably before Israel received the book of Genesis. Moses might be using this flood narrative to teach them something about God's expectations in covenant relationship. Exodus 19.5 says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now, remember, how many words does Noah speak? In chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, where we have Noah as an active participant. The only words he ever speaks are a curse that he makes on his grandson, Canaan. As we'll come to the end of the passage this morning, we'll see that Noah does not say, yes, Lord, I will do it. But the record instead is, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do, and so he did it. Here we have Israel saying, yes, of course, we will do it. We'll come to find out that Noah's faithfulness is a little more trustworthy than Israel's faithfulness. They, uh, they get a little ahead of themselves, promising perfect obedience. They should instead demonstrate it. And I think that's what Moses is trying to teach them with this: Better to show obedience than to promise or to claim obedience. But as well, these promises to Israel are made nationally. It is made to the nation of Israel and not to an individual. Each individual in that nation is going to have the opportunity, through obedience, to be a part of that covenant blessing. And it will be regulated by blessing under the Mosaic Covenant. Coming back to Noah here. God gives Noah some specific instructions. We know that God gave Israel some specific instructions as well. In fact, God's instructions to Noah about how to build the ark resemble to some degree God's instructions to Moses about how to build the temple. Just as Moses was faithful in building the temple to God's specifications, so Noah, centuries before, was faithful in building the ark, and through it came fellowship, obedience, and blessing from God. And so Noah is first commanded to build an ark. Once again, something that Noah would not have any prior understanding of. God is going to have to teach him something new. So God teaches him how to make it. I think we get the summary or the table of uh, contents on God's instructions for how to do this. Noah had about 100 years to build this ark. And an ark was something he'd never heard of before, I bet you, because there was no rainfall before Noah's flood. Probably no large bodies of water either. That might sound strange to us. I'll give you some reminders from when we did creation here in a second. But first, this word ark is teba. It is not the same word used for the Ark of the Covenant, which some try to draw a connection. There's no natural connection here. But there is a natural connection to the basket that that Moses was placed in to keep him safe. And just as through Noah, came a people that God would protect to start over again, to do something special and unique with. So God is going to do that with Moses as well. God is going to carve out a special people, Israel, and by protecting the leader of that special people in a basket, a protective basket coated in a covering, Notice as well, there is another similar word in Exodus 2-3. That basket uh, was covered with tar and pitch. Now our English translation puts pitch in the specifications for this ark. It's to be made of gopher wood. It's supposed to be covered in pitch. These are not the same two words for pitch. Pitch in Noah's account is not the normal word for something like tree sap or tar. In fact, pitch here is assumed by the translator. What God tells Noah instead is get covering wood and cover it with a covering. It is very repetitive. In fact, nobody really knows what gopher wood is. Some people think it's. Pine or cypress. I'm not even sure God is specifying a type of wood, but perhaps a method of curing wood or a method of building with that wood. All of these words in Hebrew are related. This coffer is the same Hebrew word that we get Yom Kippur from, the Day of Atonement. The verb used for a covering is the same as Moses uses in. Leviticus 17.11, when instructing them how to perform the atoning sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, to make a covering for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes a covering. Ultimately, this leads to Jesus Christ and his blood being the final atoning sacrifice, the final covering. And just as the ark is a covering, covered with a covering, so Jesus Christ and his blood is an atoning covering that carries us through judgment, yes, but it will carry Israel through judgment in the last days. And that is the Anti-type to the ark God carrying Israel through the stormy waters of the tribulation God also has to tell Noah the size of this boat now nothing of this size had ever been built before perhaps they'd had tiny floating structures for small bodies of water but nothing to this immense size 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. They may as well have put this in meters, because we don't understand it. But a cubit is simply about 17 to 21 inches, depending on where you are in the ancient world, because it's roughly the length from the tip of your middle finger to your elbow. Some people have different arm measurements, So naturally, this measurement is a little different. It's kind of like getting your measurements from the size of the king's foot. It changes from time to time. So we don't know exactly how big Noah's arm was. But it probably wasn't much larger than the largest um, recorded cubit um, in scripture, which was 21 inches. So I've given you a bit of a uh, span of length here somewhere between 450 feet and 550 feet long. That is a big boat. It's not the biggest boat we've ever heard of, but it is definitely the biggest boat that Noah ever heard of. In fact, if you've ever been in the port of Seattle during tourist season, you've seen boats that are quite a bit bigger. Its breadth or its width is 75 to 90 feet wide and its height 45 to 50 feet. Oops, now to give you a size comparison here. It's about twice the length of a jetliner. It's about the size of a submarine, a military submarine. It's a little longer than a football field. This is a big boat. In fact, it's somewhere between the size of Smith Tower and the Space Needle in length. Not quite as large as the Titanic, though. Titanic was 175 feet tall, now a lot of that had to do with its stacks, Well, Noah's Ark was only 45 feet tall. People say this structure couldn't possibly have floated, well the Titanic floated, and it might not be the best example, but boats bigger than the Titanic floated. Now its length was 882 feet, so it's about twice as long as Noah's Ark. Its width was 92 feet. So in all its proportions, the Titanic was bigger than Noah's Ark. The only incredible feat here is that Noah had never seen a boat before. God was teaching him how to do something he had never done. And God did it to such perfect specifications that it would be hard to have made it any better. In fact, it was the perfect balance of stability, strength, and comfort. Now, it doesn't look like those old Victorian ships. A lot of the, uh, do I have any? Even this would probably not be what the Ark would look like. It would be less sturdy. This one's probably a better rendering. It was probably a box, a big box. And it doesn't really matter about it uh, not floating through water very well because Noah wasn't going anywhere specific. All he needed to do was stay upright. God taught him how to make the perfect box to keep him upright during the flood with enough size to store everything that God would have them store. This verse just reminds us that God's original creation did not have rainfall. It says the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and we don't see rain until the flood. Now, it's possible that God did send rain beforehand, but it doesn't seem probable from the text. This was something new. God probably watered the ground with a mist from the ground all the way up to Noah's time, which means the grounds... Just like ours today, especially in places like Japan or Yellowstone, they have lots of underground volcanics. This is a tool God's going to use to cause the flood. God is going to activate the trigger on the earth and destroy the earth with it. And the underground oceans are going to become above ground oceans. there were also some specifications God makes for the ark. He tells them to put a window in it, to make a single door on the side of the ark, and to make three decks. Now, there's a lot of typology we could probably draw from this. Not all of it is solidly founded as others. But even typology has literal antitypes. When God says, put a window in the ark, Noah understood to put a window in the ark. God told him to make it a cubit high. So Noah makes a window, a cubit high, around the perimeter of the ark. Good for airflow. Good for storing thousands of animals in a box together with people. You'd probably want some airflow. God is even concerned with Noah's comfort Probably helps keep them alive, I guess. God says to make three decks. So not only is our big boat big enough to carry animals, but it's big enough to carry animals on three different decks. They're not all just down in the hull. God also said to make rooms in these. The word for rooms in the Hebrew is the same word for nests. These animals are probably very efficiently stored. Noah had a hundred years and direct instructions from God about how to build this ark. God knew what he wanted. God knew his purposes for it and he taught Noah how to do it. And Noah did it. And that's going to be the most important thing for us. Noah did it. He didn't say, Oh no, God, that's too hard. We get an example in numbers of Israel saying, Oh no, God, that's too hard doesn't turn out as well for them as it turns out for Noah. But we do have one type here that does have a lot of merit. And that is the single door on the side of the ark. God only gave one point of access into this salvation. And that was through the door which God himself would close. John 10:9 tells us that Jesus Christ is the door. Now this is not referring specifically to the ark, but we can, make, we can draw a line from this to that. Here he's saying that he is the sheep gate, the door through which the sheep come. But who are the sheep? We are the sheep. We come through this door and we are sealed away by God. This is a good verse for salvation by no other than Jesus Christ, but it is also a good verse for eternal security. We don't have to pull this door shut. We don't have to hold it shut through the stormy waters. The door is shut, and we are securely inside. But you do have to get inside. For us, getting inside that secure door is simply believing. We just believe. For Noah, his eternal security was securely founded on a single moment of faith. But his physical security was founded on getting on the ark. He could have built it over 100 years and then just decided he doesn't trust God anymore. God hasn't brought a flood in all these hundreds of years. All of his neighbors are criticizing him for building a big box in his backyard. And he says it's going to float. Noah didn't get worn down by the culture continually degrading around him because his hope was focused on a future promise of God. And because God promised that on the other side of that destruction, he was going to make a covenant with Noah. This would keep Noah going. And so as there is divine judgment in a flood, there is also that perfect promise of divine grace in Noah's ark. Noah puts his trust in God's grace to carry him through. God's grace is sufficient. And God's also going to tell him to bring along the animals with him. Then Noah is not going to go out and hunt down all of these animals, find the best pairs, and then choose to bring those on the ark. God's going to bring them right to him. All he's got to do is prepare the space for them and load them on up. God says to bring two of every kind into the ark. does not tell him to bring two of every kind to the ark. God does that. And God's purpose is to keep them alive and to keep Noah alive. God is not here telling them to keep the animals alive. says they will get into the ark to keep them alive with you. In the English, this can be easily read as, Noah, your responsibility is making sure none of these animals die. That is not what God is saying here. God is saying, I am going to keep you alive, and I am going to keep them alive, and that's why they get on this ark with you. And then they shall be male and female. Now, I'm no biologist, but I think this is to keep them alive as well. God's not just concerned in keeping them alive just for the year that they're on the ark, but in keeping them alive for generations and generations and generations. For that, you need males and females, contrary to popular belief these days. So how many animals do you need? How many animals can you fit? Some people might say that this arc is far too small to fit every kind of animal. And there's about a million different calculations of how many animals you need and how many can fit. Well, I'm also no mathematician, so I have to trust other people on this. But the math seems pretty solid. You can fit 125,000 sheep-sized creatures on this ark, based on how many sheep fit in rail cars and how many rail cars fit in the ark. That's my summary of the math. How many different kinds of animals depends on what you classify as kinds. Science today doesn't do a very good job at classifying things but God does. And although we don't have all of these kinds specified for us, we go back to base pairs. How how few animals can you get to get the creatures we have today? Because although there is no such thing as macroevolution, one kind becoming another kind, there is microevolution, which is more like adaptation. Creatures which have many different genes inside, and as they lose information, they become creatures that look a little different from their cousins. Mind you, a little different from their cousins. So we only really need one dog. We don't need all the different kinds of dogs. We just need one that has all of that genetic information in it. So how many different kinds do we need? We have about 1,398 different kinds. Different base species. And if you take two of each, plus, as we'll get to later, seven seven pairs of each clean animal, you end up with about 6,744 individual animals. Now, this is a minimum. You can't do less than this without losing animals. The maximum, some calculate, would be 75,000 you're still only at 60% capacity in the ark. In fact, with the 6,700, I think you're at less than 3% capacity. Less than 6% capacity. God made a big enough ark. God specified the dimensions as well as the purpose. God is not going to tell Noah to build an ark that's too small. And so, as we'll see, all flesh on the earth will perish, except for what is in the ark with Noah. This does not include all of the sea creatures. He didn't need to bring a whale on board. He didn't even need to bring a goldfish. God can keep those alive. He probably won't keep all of them alive. There will be massive destruction in the animal kingdom, but God can keep fish alive. If they need water to survive, they'll have water. Noah also probably doesn't need to bring all the bugs. What he needs to bring are those things which need air to breathe, which need dry land to live. This parallels with the days of creation. These are the days of uncreation. God is undoing the destruction that man has caused, undoing what has become corrupt. But God is not destroying completely his creation. God is preserving what is preservable and destroying what is corrupt. Genesis 1 we saw that the living creatures, those things that swarm in the air and in the seas, birds and the fish, were created. God's going to protect both, but he's going to protect them in different places. He's going to protect birds on the ark and fish in the, in the seas and in the lakes and in the oceans. Noah's going to need to bring cattle with him. He's going to need to bring dogs and cats. He's going to need to bring dinosaurs. Some of these are quite big. There's a couple ways around that. You bring babies. They eat less too. Probably sleep a bit more. Might be a little rambunctious. But even with the big animals that you have, the average size of creatures that Noah would have to bring on the ark are barely the size of a large rat the average size of these animals is quite small. Now, the sad thing about this is there was so much room left on the ark. 6,000 to 75,000 animals and only eight people. There was plenty of room left for more people. And man as well, just like the animals, were living creatures. Those living creatures with the breath of life that God said he would protect through the flood on the ark. But they had to get on the ark. In a hundred years of preaching, Noah was able to get his family On the ark we would look at this and say his ministry was unsuccessful but god looks at it and knows that his ministry was exactly as successful as he portioned it out to be because noah did all that god told him to do not all that his neighbors told him to do not all that his wife told him to do if she told him what to do I would assume she did. That seems to be a pattern. (laughs) I wouldn't know. I'm not married. (laughs) But God is going to keep them alive. God is going to do the work. Noah just has to do what he's told. (laughs) I'm getting some scowls out there. (laughs) It's a joke. But Noah's also supposed to bring enough food for all of these creatures. So Noah's got his work cut out for him. God gives him plenty of time to do it. And what does he do? He does it. And you know, this firmly plants him in the Faith Hall of Fame. For as many characters as we see in the Old Testament... Not many of them are recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. But Noah is. And we, when we look at why he is, it's not because he had the most successful uh, the most successful ministry in converting souls. Some people will be blessed with that kind of ministry. No. God says it is by faith that Noah pleased him. Hebrews 11:6. without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, Noah could have said, God, I don't really believe you, but just in case, I'm going to build myself a boat. I might not follow your specifications for how to do it because I think, I think you got it wrong there. You're not really experiencing what I'm experiencing here no, he didn't do that. He said, okay, God, I don't know what a flood is. I don't know what an ark is, but I'll do what you say. And so by faith, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, Noah prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith." How did he condemn the world? He prepared that dividing factor, that single means of salvation by which every person would be found either in or outside of salvation. Jesus brings about the condemnation of the world by being the one way of salvation. Every individual is going to have to choose, do I trust Jesus and his finished work on the cross or do I trust myself to save me? And so a good application for Noah from God's words is that God's promise of a covenant to Noah was Noah's ark of protection. Not the boat that he built, but the promise that he built it on. This guaranteed his survival. The faithful labor of Noah's hand was, the on, was only a means by which God permitted Noah to demonstrate his obedience. And Noah trusted in God's future salvation and future blessing. Noah got the opportunity to participate through obedience and he was blessed. Israel gets that opportunity, and that's why Noah, or Moses, is writing this book to the Israelites. For them, they also get an opportunity to demonstrate faithful obedience. All they have to do is go into the land that God has brought them to. God is going to go ahead of them, and he is going to fight the battle for them. He has promised that they will take the promised land and that they will have rest in it. And they say, that's a little too big for God. Well, if he can bring Noah through destruction of the entire earth, he can bring a few million Israelites into a land of some corrupt people that God has declared will be spewed out of the land they get an opportunity for blessing. Many of them do not walk in that blessing. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 2, God or Moses is preparing the second generation of Israelites to enter into the land, and he gives them some promises of blessing and promises of cursing. He says, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord. Twelve verses come after that, detailing what kind of blessings God would bring. But then in verse 15, he says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, uh, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he proceeds to give them 52 verses of cursing. The consequences of disobedience are severe, but that doesn't diminish the blessing of obedience. The blessings were far better than the cursings were bad. But this was a prophetic statement. Israel would receive this blessing. There was no two ways about that. It was only a question of which individual Jews of the nation of Israel would walk in that blessing. Specifically, which generation of Jews would be would walk perfectly in that blessing. And so in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, Moses writes, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you. Not if you do that or if you do this, like the past ones, but... When, at the time, that this is all finished. The blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. See, some of their curses are different cycles of banishment from the land. The last curse is a banishment into all of the lands to be spread across the earth. But this promises that when they have received this full cycle of cursing, God is going to call them back from the lands to which he banished them. He's going to call them back during a time called the tribulation period, during the time of Jacob's trouble, the last three and a half years. Of that tribulation period and just as he protected noah in the ark he is going to protect israel and so from those nations when they turn back to the lord and they obey him with all their heart and soul according to all that i commanded you today back in noah's day you and your sons when the lord your god will restore you from captivity And have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now there's a missing element from this that Moses didn't understand and that God didn't reveal to him at that time. And that is an eighth covenant that's going to come in called the New Covenant. This is the last covenant that God is going to give to Israel. And this is how they will be obedient because God through their faith and through their faith alone in the Messiah will regenerate them and empower them for faithfulness. And in the last week of the tribulation period, every single Jew alive at that time will receive the Messiah, will be converted and regenerated and made faithful to God. And God will bring about his promise to the generation that believes in him, to the generation that receives him by faith. But there is an application for us, of course. You see, our spiritual salvation is already secure just as Noah's was. When we meet Noah for the first time, he's already spiritually secure. That's why God's even talking to him. That's why God's already using him. He already believes in God for his salvation. God's giving him an opportunity to walk in obedience with that faith. And so our hope of future glory as well is already secure. We are already locked away in the ark The door is already sealed. So what then is there left for us to do? What is the only possible insecurity that we can have? That is, how useful will we be to God's purposes? Will we keep the faith? Not will we find enough things to do in our Christian lives, enough bake sales to be a part of, or charities to donate to? That is not the question. Will our faith persevere? Because God uses faith. When you believe him, when you trust him, you do the things that he brings to you for you to do. So then will you walk in his will? He doesn't ask you to do his will. He asks you to walk. Walk. Walk in the things that he has prepared for you to do, storing up treasures in heaven. You see, obedience is an opportunity for greater blessing. We observe three tenses of our salvation. The first one is absolutely finished. At the cross, there is nothing left to do to pay for the penalty of sin. and our future is guaranteed we will be glorified together with him we will be made perfect and under the same covenant that purifies israel in the last days we also have that hope that we will be purified by the blood of christ that on that day where we shed these mortal coils either by resurrection or translation we will be glorified together with him. So Peter gives us a good exhortation where we should fix our hope. He says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on the horizon. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, as in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I was once told that this is the scariest verse in the Bible, and if you're doing it on your own power, it is the scariest verse in the Bible, but you would have to take Peter wildly out of context to come to that conclusion. This is a blessed promise. Because he is holy and because we are in him, this is possible for us to be holy. Because it's not on our merit, but on his. All we have to do is believe. Paul has some good applications as well. In 1 Timothy 4, he says, Be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, you can't take clause 2 without clause 1. How do you be a good servant of Christ Jesus? You decide you're going to win one soul to Christ each day for the rest of your life. No. No. You can't make that determination, and you're going to burn out faster than anything else if you try. You are to constantly be nourished on the words, on the doctrine that God has given you, reading his word, because that's the only thing that's going to prepare you for what God will have for you to walk in. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Once again, sorry, I didn't write it. On the other hand, to discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. I'm going to have one person here particularly after service who's going to want a, a bit of my time. <laughs> 1 Timothy 4.8 For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's what we're working for, right? Rewards in the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance for, it is for this we labor and strive. It is for this we do the work of God. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so that future hope, again, enables us for service today. We don't have to get through our sanctification today in order to guarantee our glorification tomorrow. Because the future promises of God are guaranteed, we are prepared for the service today. And so we can agree with John in 1 John 3, where he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we keep our eyes trained on the horizon, waiting for the Lord's return, because we will be conformed to his image on that day. No two ways about it. But we want rewards when we get to heaven so we can throw those crowns before the Lord's feet and glorify him all the more. And so our takeaway then is to take opportunity to be obedient to what God is preparing you to do to walk in his will and see how he can use you and how do you do that there's no other way but faith faith and faith alone and so in closing i actually have a hymn that i want to read to you and it's a hymn that i was instructed to memorize on the first day of my freshman year of high school i cannot remember it today because that was more than 10 years ago but i have it printed out (laughs) It says, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me, and the changes that are sure to come I do not fear to see. But I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I ask thee for a thoughtful love through constant watching wise, to meet the glad with joyful smiles, and to weep the weeping eyes, and a heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro, seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know. I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. Wherever in the world I am, in whatsoever state, I have a fellowship with hearts to keep and cultivate, and a work of lowly love to do for the Lord on whom I wait so I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied and a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side content to fill a little space if thou be glorified and if some things I do not ask in my cup of blessing be I would have my spirit filled the more with grateful love to thee more careful not to serve thee much but to please Thee perfectly. There are briars besetting every path that call for patient care. There is a cross in every lot and an earnest need for prayer. But a lowly heart that leans on Thee is happy anywhere. In a service which Thy will appoints, there are no bounds for me. For my inmost heart is taught the truth that makes Thy children free. And a life of self-renouncing love is a life of liberty. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have prepared everything before us and you have given us no requirement but to trust in you. We thank you that it is all settled at the cross and guaranteed for the future and prepared for us today. We thank you that you've made it so easy that there is no work we can add to your work but that we just receive yours on the simple promise that you will bring all to pass that you have promised. So we thank you, Lord, for this this promise we can hold on to, and we look forward to your soon coming. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.